Good morning. Um, we are uh, biblical literacy. I think uh, um, most of you who speak English have been here before. Um, those of you who, who speak Russian, I know absolutely zip, but get some colors out and have some fun with the lesson notes. If you don't have an outline of the lesson, um, we've got some. It's a holdover from last week. Uh, I've made a few changes up here, but the lesson's the same. Who's got the lessons? Someone's got the lessons. Usually Mark Kraber's walking around. I don't see Mark. Oh, there he is. Have we handed out lessons? Okay, we're ready to go. So some people don't need it. If you need a lesson, raise your hand and Mark Kraber will get you one. Um, if you don't, then uh, we will proceed. Um, I have some questions for you. I have two questions. I want you to think about these as we go through this class. Um, I'm talking about a familiar story from the life of David. I'm also talking about a story not as familiar from the life of David. This is the continuation of the rise and fall of King Saul. And so we're looking at David before David becomes king, uh, though after uh, David is anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel. Um, in the process of this, I do want you to really try and ask these questions. One of the hardest things to do with the biblical story that we know is let it impact us. If you've got a Bible story that you know, that you've heard about, that you've taught in Sunday school, that you've taught to your children, that you've sung about, that you've had your parents teach you, the hardest thing sometimes is to take that story and to make it fresh and glean something new from it that will build you up. Uh, I promise you, I believe there are things in this story that we have not addressed before. Uh, uh, somewhere in the midst of it, because the story is so rich with fruit uh, that there's got to be a piece here or there that you've, you've not picked or not been able to find. So hang on, but in the process, even the fruit that you've tasted before and the parts of this story that you know, let's see if we can't make it fresh and new in your heart. And to do that requires you and me to be disciplined in how we approach this. So I really want you to do this. I want you to humor me. I want you to take a moment and I want you to ask yourself these questions and I want you to seriously ask it. Question number one, how do you handle crisis? How do you handle crisis? Now, don't just say, well, I handle it pretty good. I mean, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, when you have a crisis, how do you handle it? And I don't want the pious answer either. Well, this is Sunday school, so let's see, I should say, I go to God with my crisis. I don't want that. I want an honest answer. You have to be honest with yourself. This is not one that you have to write down and show your neighbor. You could probably ask your spouse or friends who are close to you, how do I handle crisis? And they could tell you, but that's not going to happen either. This is private. The question is, when you have a crisis, when you have a problem, I don't mean just a flat tire. You know, Philip would tell you the way Mark handles crisis is he buzzes one of five people at the law firm and says, I have a crisis, you handle it. Um, I don't just mean those kinds of crises. I mean something that's serious, a health problem, a family problem, a financial problem, a, a, a crisis in, in relationship, 
a crisis in um, job, how do you handle it? What goes on? What is the panic? Do you pick up the cigarettes that you quit? Do you go find relief in some other area? Is, is, is this why God made liquor? Is um, this why you just run from responsibility? I read somewhere that when people are in financial difficulty and they, they are at a point where they're overdrawn at the bank or something, do you know what most people typically do? Not most. That, I don't know what the figure was, okay? I, I'm convinced 47.9% of statistics are made up on the spot. Um, the, uh, did, did you know that a good number of people, when they're faced with financial problems that they can't seem to find a way out, their solution is to spend more? I'm already overdrawn, might as well write another hot check. That's the reaction. Okay. I want you to sit down and I want you to really think, how do I handle crisis? There's not good or bad answers to this. There's only truthful answers. Get a truthful one. Second question I want you to ask is this. Totally different. Okay, we're through with question number one. Cross it out. Question number two. Who do you live to please? You know, DeMond asked this morning, he said there are two uh, uh, major American gods, if you will, materialism and pleasure. Who do you live to please? What is your motivation in life? Why do you live? Why do you do what you do? Do you do it to put food on the table? Do you do it to keep family peace? Do you do it because there's some internal drive in you that says, I've got to take care of this matter? Why do you do what you do? Why do you live? What is your motivation? Why would you look into taking uh, in children and helping place children that don't have a home? Now, we have lots of different motivations. One of them may be this, one of them may be that. But start thinking, what are the overwhelming things that drive my life? Okay. Those are your two questions. If you address those two questions right now in your brain then as we go through this class, I think you're going to find some things that, that nourish you through these stories. We want to keep in context. That's my one plea when people read the Bible. Please keep in context. It's the way not only to make sense of what's there in a godly manner and a logical, rational manner, but it's also the way to continue to get all of the nourishment from the meal that you can. Um, we remembered last week, we pick up with where Saul has fallen. Saul was God's anointed. Saul was going to be the first king Israel ever had and uh, was in fact that first king. And Saul started his life with some humility, but the humility did not have roots that went deep. And as Saul found success and Saul found prestige and Saul found fame and Saul found money, Saul's humility left. Saul no longer saw himself as God's vessel. Saul was the freewheel agent out there doing it himself. And humility was gone. Obedience was gone. Why obey God when you're doing fine on your own? Common sense is gone. Saul started making stupid mistakes. Told stupid lies. Had no accountability to anyone whatsoever. 
His courage also melted away. If it was something Saul could do on his own, he had no problem doing it. But if it was something bigger than Saul, Saul had no courage because there was nothing bigger than Saul for him to call on. Saul was a head taller than anyone else in Israel. And as long as the problem was smaller than Saul, Saul relied on Saul. The first time Saul would find a problem bigger than Saul, Saul's courage, common sense, and wisdom melted away because Saul had nothing to rely on bigger than he was. I'm going to, I've just said it twice. Dr. Bob tells me I have to say things three times sometimes to make them stick. Okay? There's a reason I'm saying this one three times. This is an important point. Okay? I ask you, how do you handle crisis? I ask you, who do you live for? And those are the thoughts. When Saul had problems smaller than him, he handled them fine because Saul was handling Saul's own problems. When the problem was bigger than Saul, Saul had no way of handling it. The crisis overcame Saul. Saul walked in panic and fear because the problem's bigger than Saul and Saul had nowhere to turn, no one to turn to that was bigger than he was. So he had nothing bigger than the problem. And the crisis overtook Saul instead of Saul overtaking the crisis. Okay? We're going to compare that to the second king. By the way, I'm convinced Saul's sanity is gone, too. The guy's doing crazy stuff. Um, and his anointing is gone. God took away the anointing from Saul. David receives the anointing. Um, the rise of David. It happens in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, we covered it briefly, but it's important to this story, so we're covering it again. Um, first of all, David is the youngest of eight brothers. Uh, God tells Samuel, go to Bethlehem. It's a significant place for a king of Israel to be born, isn't it? Or at least be living. Go to Bethlehem, and in Bethlehem, you're going to anoint the person that I tell you to anoint as king. House of Jesse. Go ask for Jesse's boys. Samuel says, well, if I go to Bethlehem, you know, Saul's going to get really ticked off that I'm, hey, Saul, I'm going to go anoint your successor. God says, don't worry, just go tell Saul that you're going to um, sacrifice to my honor. And he doesn't have to know why you're sacrificing. Take the heifer. So Samuel takes the heifer. He goes to Bethlehem. People in Bethlehem are a little concerned. Here comes Samuel, the big prophet of God. They want to know if they're in trouble. Did they do anything wrong? He says, no, 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 just y'all come on. We're going to sacrifice. And oh, by the way, I need to see Jesse bring your boys. The first boy comes out, Eliab, and, and, and Eliab is big, kind of like Saul. And Samuel thinks, oh, here's the big one. He's the oldest. He's big. Okay, this is the one I'm supposed to anoint. And God says to Samuel, hey, eh. we tried the big one last time, and it was, it was like a no-go, okay? This time we're not going by size on the outside. We're going by the heart. So don't pick based upon what men are going to see as, yes, here's my champion, the big guy, Okay? Let's go for God's champion big on the inside. All right? So Samuel says, got it. Uh, Eliab, good to meet you. Get out of the way. Next. 
And in comes, you know, this is like Star Search kind of. And, and God was, what's the American you know, the idol? And is Simon, I've only seen it once or twice. My girls love it. But, but is Simon the one who speaks with the accent and is real critical? Okay, well, I mean, that's what we have here. Oh, you're tall. Well, tough. Out of the way. That's not what we're looking for. And in comes the next one. And he, and uh, that's not it either. Next, that's not it. Well, he goes through seven of them. All seven in the line. Boom, 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 boom. Samuel says, man, I know the Lord told me to anoint one of your sons, but this, these, these aren't it. Are you sure you're not missing one? And we have five kids, and we frequently misplace them. And <laughs> <clears throat> we, we went on a family vacation this year, and, and there were, wound up being at 1.17 of us all together. And we'd try and get on buses, and, and all I could do is just, you, couldn't, you could not do it any other way than counting. Okay, one, two, three, and it's embarrassing to have to figure out if your whole family's there by counting instead of naming them, but that's all we could do. So he says, you've got seven here, but, it, you know, well, we have an eight, but he's the baby. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep because we're all in here playing with you, Samuel. And Samuel says, well, get him in here. I said, I want all your boys. Well, in comes the eighth. He is David. He's ruddy, and he is handsome. But that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for the heart. God says to Samuel, this is my man. Anoint this one. David is anointed. And we read in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel, uh, verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil. I'm going to put it on the Elmo. I think you probably have a Bible with you, but you may not. Um, and, and I want you to also notice something here for what it's worth. Um, if you look at my Bible, can you all read that print? Is that big enough? Okay. Um, you'll see there's underlining there. That didn't come with this. This little David takes spirit in power, that didn't come with the Bible either. There's nothing wrong with writing in your Bible. This is one of these verses worth writing in, on. Um, Make whatever. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers. There's some jealousy. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And Samuel left. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. We remember from here. Our word, theological term du jour last week was selective indwelling. God's Spirit in the Old Testament would selectively go in to certain people. It did not go to all of God's children like it does in, uh, after Christ. Um, so the youngest of eight brothers is David, and David is actually anointed, and the Spirit of God comes upon him in, in uh, power. Um, verse 13... And then Samuel leaves. And the story just leaves. And we, we next have um, David doing some service for Saul while Saul's a bit nutty and out of it. And David will play the uh, instrument. We read later that David was actually going to Saul and then coming back to his dad to take care of the sheep and doing all of this. Saul, it doesn't even register who David is uh, in some ways it looks like. And then we get to chapter 17. And this is the chapter that calls that first question, how do you handle crisis? Because this is the story of David and Goliath. 
and this is a wonderful story. First of all, there is a face-off that's taking place. And please understand the way the face-off works. We've got the Philistines lining up for battle. Whoa. Okay? And they line up for battle, and they face off against the Jews. And every day, what would happen is... You know, and, and this is like the plane between where they've uh, uh, drawn their lines. Every day, this one big Philistine would come out and he would say, Hey, what are we? A couple of armies here fighting? What's the point in armies fighting? I'm just one guy. You're, you, you, you pick your one guy out and let's fight. This face-off is taking place. Now, the problem with this is, you know, you might think, great, we'll pick our best, you know, Jackie Chan and send him out there and, and uh, put our jujitsu on him. But the problem is, this guy is named Goliath. He's from a Philistine town called Gath, and he's a really big fella. Um, he makes Saul look like a point guard. If you, uh, um, that's not useful for people who aren't basketball fans. He makes Saul look small. This guy's like nine feet tall. He's huge. The head of his spear alone weighs 15 pounds. His armor weighs over 100 pounds that he's wearing. He's got his shield bearer who goes out in front of him. And you know the little shield bearer going out in front of him just makes him look even bigger. And so this monstrous guy comes out there and says, and, and you know he had to talk like Rocky. Uh, hey, <laughs> you want to fight, eh? <laughs> you know? he, Bob thinks he was from New Jersey. Um, <laughs> the guy comes out and he starts taunting the armies of God. But the armies of God don't realize they're the armies of God. They're thinking they're the armies of Saul. And this is a problem that's bigger than Saul by several feet. And Saul doesn't know how to handle it. And don't you know it was humiliating for the army when the army galvanized around Saul and the way Saul really became king was leading the army. And their king, their champion, the one that they've all agreed to follow because he's the fiercest man in all of Israel, is cowering in fear behind the lines because he won't face this crisis, this giant, Goliath. So with the soldiers and the kings paralyzed with fear, something happens. David's got three brothers in the army. And one day David's dad, Jesse, says to David, David, I need you to go check on your brothers. They didn't have CNN. They didn't have the Drudge Report. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have Fox News. They didn't know what was going on in the battlefield Three of the man's boys are off fighting a battle. He'd like to know what's going on with them. So he tells David to go check it out. David says, okay. Now, we're going to go back to the scriptures for a minute. Um, let's see. 
says in um, 1 Samuel 17, David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now for 40 days, the Philistine, that's uh, Goliath. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. He taunts them day in, day out. Jesse says to David, his son, take this bread, um, take the cheese to the commander of the unit, see how your brothers are, and bring back some assurance from them. Please let me know that your brothers, my sons, are okay. That's an understandable dad. If, you know, anybody who's a dad, if your sons are off at war, wouldn't you like to know if they're okay? Okay, it's understandable. So I love this passage. Um, early in the morning, I circled it in mine. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed, Jesse being his father. Let's time out for just a moment here. This is a useful time out. This gives us a little bit of insight into the character of David. Um, you probably have never had this happen with your children, but occasionally with our children, even when we've asked them to do something that seems very important, um, they don't always just jump at the opportunity. <laughs> occasionally, we have had children want to know why. Occasionally, we have had children want to express uh, displeasure over that chore. Occasionally, we've had children want to express how that chore really can't be done. Occasionally, we've had children say, yes, I will get to that tomorrow. And as Shakespeare says, uh, tomorrow creeps in at a mighty petty pace. You know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in. Um, or, or as the, the saying is in Mexico, manana. It's just manana never comes. It's always manana. And, and we, our kids have understood that concept and used that with us. David's response, it doesn't show any hesitancy at all. David's response is one of, A, a, a first thing early in the morning, he gets up and does it. Second thing, he doesn't just go off and leave. He does the responsible thing and takes the sheep and makes sure there's a shepherd to watch them while he's gone. Okay. We see in just these small little glimpses, character issues, and that's what they are. It's a character issue what we do when no one is watching. Even something so small as how we take care of our own business. What we do when no one's watching is a reflection of character. That's the heart, part of the heart that God had been looking for in his king. So we see that with David. And David goes and um, um, heads on out. Now, I like what happens here. David... Uh, let me go back to the laptop. The details reveal his character. We went through that. Um, David shows up. He gets the supplies. He wants to go check on his brother. He leaves the supplies with a responsible person. Again, being responsible. And then David goes and, and David hears the taunt. David hears Goliath come out and say, Oh, who's got enough courage just to fight me? Why should our army and your army be engaged in an awful battle where a lot of people are going to win their, lose their lives? I'm one man. You get one guy. He comes out. We do mano a mano. And if y'all beat us, hey, we're your servants. 
If we beat you, you're ours. Now who wants to fight? And this same taunt has been happening for 40 days, morning and evening, as David comes upon the scene. And it's interesting because this is the taunt that had paralyzed Saul and his army with fear. The NIV translates it, terrified them. They hear the taunt and their response is, Oh, man, we're scared to death. David hears it, and David's response is totally different. David's response is one of astonishment. Like, where does this guy get off doing this? Can you believe this joker? David doesn't know this has been going on for 40 days and nights. I don't think David even understands that everybody's scared to death of the guy. David's response is, oh man, what lucky guy's going to get to go bounce this bozo back to Philistine? And I mean, his attitude is, man, don't you know whoever goes out and whips this guy is going to get something great from the king? Who's, where's the line of people fighting to, to, to be the one? The brothers hear him say this. The older one says, you are so arrogant. You know, you've probably left the sheep. Uh, well, I, I can't do this passage justice. The, the, this is one of these passages that just read better than they tell. Um, look at this. When El, oh, oh, here's David. David asks the men standing near him, hey, what's going to be done for the man who kills this guy? You know, it wasn't like, what's going to be done for the man who goes out there if he loses? You know, the, the, you know does he get, what, what is it that the... Muslim faith, the renegade Muslim faith teaches if you go out there and you martyr, you get like a hundred women in heaven or something. It, it wasn't that kind of a question, like it's a fool's mission. For him, it's a no-brainer. Someone's going to go kill this guy. What happens to the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from our land? And then I love this. I love this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should be defying or taunting, another version says, the armies of the living God? To David, it wasn't, oh man, look who's come to fight Saul's army. To David, it's, what gall does this uncircumcised Philistine have to taunt God's armies? When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, Eliab burned with anger at David and said, What are you doing here? Why have you come down here? And, you know, with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? You have such a puny job. All you do is take care of a few sheep, but I'll bet you didn't even leave them. You just came down here to Jaha and act like a big dog. I know how conceited you are. I know how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Um, my note on the side is, words of sibling rivalry to be eaten later. Um, I, uh, uh, our son returned... Uh, last week from spending some time at a, at a Christian study 
uh, center in, in Switzerland, in Labrie, Switzerland. And it was a wonderful place for him. And uh, it, it had been started by a, a missionary in Switzerland named Francis Schaefer uh, back in the 50s, really, Francis and his wife Edith. Um, I have had uh, chances to go there uh, occasionally, but not for extended study time. And I was there the first time I went for a dinner one night. And the way dinners are conducted there is it's incredibly cool uh, to me. Um, you have tables set up for the dinner. And there's maybe 20 or 30 students at any time there. And most students aren't, uh, Will by far was the youngest. Often the students are are college graduates, 30s, 40s, 50s years old. I mean, they, they go through the span. But um, when I was there, each, each uh, dinner table has a subject for conversation for the dinner. And each, um, you, when, when you sit there to eat the dinner, you, you, one person is in charge of bringing all the food and clearing all the dishes. No one else is allowed to. I got up to try and, you know, my mom would get upset if I didn't get up and try and remove my plate and show that I was a nice guest. And I was scolded, sit back down. One person does that, otherwise it's too disruptive for the conversation. We don't gather together to eat. We gather together to eat to have conversation. And the man in charge of our table was talking about, the, our table was, why does it seem God does not answer prayer sometimes? And um, it was interesting to hear the discussion from everybody on the table. And, and by the way, the way they eat dinner, when the food's gone, dinner's not over. Dinner is only over when everyone's satisfied that the conversation is finished, the discussion topic. Sometimes dinner would last till midnight and the food would be gone at 8 o'clock. Okay? So we're sitting there, we're having this discussion, and the Labrie leader on my table, who was leading the discussion, um, as we were talking about it, would occasionally throw out things like, well, now compare this Christian idea that we're discussing with the Buddhist concept that prayers go da-da-da-da-da. And I must admit, when I heard this the first time, my thought was, okay, I mean, I appreciate that this is a real academic, mind-challenging place and all, but I hate it when Christians stand up and act like they know all about, you know, this, the Buddhist faith. When, you know, the guy probably has read a couple books, maybe. But I'm sitting there thinking, that's not even what I think Buddhists really believe. Okay? So I thought about saying, well, you know, I don't want to intrude here, but it seems to me that the Buddhist faith actually is a little bit more. And I thought, well, now I should just, like, shut up. I am a guest here, and, and you know, I'll just be quiet and not say anything. Thank you, Lord. Um, he says it a few more times, and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, man, this guy's just driving me crazy. He's just so haughty. He just speaks like he is Mr. Know-it-all. And I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, uh, it just drives me crazy when I hear Christians talk like they just have it all figured out about something that they really know absolutely nothing about. So I'm just sitting there biting my tongue every time he compares it to the beauty of faith and... And all, well, the meal's over, and finally, and, and it was wonderful, and I had a great time, and I was real thankful for it. And I wanted to engage this fellow in a little side conversation, just talk to him. I said, so, it's interesting to meet you. How long have you been here? He said, oh, about uh, 10 years, I think he said. I don't remember. I said, interesting. I said, well, you seem to have some insight into Buddhism. Uh, ha have you read books on it, or how would you come by it? He said, well, I was a Buddhist monk for 35 years before I became a Christian. <laughs> 
yes, I'm so glad I never said anything about that. Because you see, we as humans have a tendency to operate out of our brain, and our brain is about the size of our fist. And you can make a fist and look at it and realize that's your thinking material. And scientists say we use 10% of it. So, um, you know, sometimes we just say things that, it even, I just said it internally, <laughs> thank you, Lord, instead of externally, or they'd still be talking about, remember when that guy came from Texas? <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, we, we say things externally, internally, when sometimes we should hold our tongues. It's just a freebie. Um, so anyway, uh, David's brother did that. I'm sure for the rest of his life he was telling his kids, you should hear what I told David when he came and Goliath was taunting us. Um, David's reaction is different because David sees the situation the way God sees the situation. And God doesn't see it as, gee, can Saul beat up Goliath? God sees it as, what right does this uncircumcised Philistine to come, taunt, to, come to my country and taunt my people whom I gave the land to and I specifically said I would fight their battles. This puny giant that I made thinks he's bigger than me, El Shaddai, God Almighty, Yahweh. And that's the way David saw it. Um, David says, I I I'll fight him. I mean, I, I would think there'd be a line to fight this guy. There should have been a line to fight this guy. David says, I'll fight him. And the word gets to Saul, and Saul says, you know, I'm sure Saul, please understand, if David had lost, which Saul thoroughly and everybody else thoroughly expected David to do, the Israelites would not have voluntarily said, okay, now we're your servants. They'd have kept the line. You know, so this is just, Saul's just throwing out a little dead meat in his mind. He's just chumming the waters when he lets David go fight this battle. He says to David, you know, you're probably going to get killed, man. You're like a kid. And David says something. He says, please understand I'm a shepherd. And I want to tell you what's happened. Lions have come after my sheep. And bears have come after my sheep. And because God works in my life, God has delivered the lions and the bears to me. I've killed them with my bare hands. The same God who gives me the lions and the bears, they ain't going to have a problem with this uncircumcised Philistine. I'm not scared in the least. My God is bigger than this crisis. I don't go into this crisis as the small boy. I go into this crisis as the one in front of God Almighty. Please understand the way the situation was being laid out. Because there's a picture that the scriptures give us that we miss. Um, Goliath comes out to fight. Okay? Where is Goliath? Is he there? Oh, yeah. Goliath comes out to fight, and in front of Goliath is his shield-bearer. And the passage makes it clear multiple times. Goliath would send his shield-bearer out in front. Who comes out to fight him? David. 
David doesn't have a shield bearer. But David's not really doing the fighting, is he? Who's really doing the fighting? Okay. It's just he's in parentheses and no one sees him. All right? That's the way the battle lines up. No one seems to see him but David, and it's a pity because he's made himself known. We still don't see him in the crisis in our lives, and he's been working for, what, a few thousand years? He gave his son to die for us, and we can't trust him with our money. We can't trust him with our job. We can't trust him with our family. We can't trust him with our crisis. You know, God, I know you saved mankind, but this is really big. <laughs> so David goes out in front of him, and it's David versus Goliath and Goliath's shield-bearer. And David says to Saul, he says, look, I'm not really worried about this. And Saul says, well, okay, at least let me give you my armor. Armor's in short supply in Israel. They don't have a lot of blacksmiths. Uh, uh, you know, this is a, a tough situation. Let me give you my armor. Let me give you my sword. And it says David clamps the sword on. Um, again, this is where the story reads so much better than I can say it. Um, you'll see, uh, uh, again, my notes here. David uh, said to Saul, Your servant's been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I grabbed it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servants killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me, Yahweh who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. My note, remember how God has worked in your life and lean on it in faith when you have a crisis. DeMond said 50-year-old and above people ought to be the most exciting, vibrant people alive for the church. Do you know why? Because if you've been alive in Jesus long... You've started building up a resume of credentials for God of how he has worked in your life. The biggest drawback we've got is not giving him credit for a lot of it. I can remember as a child, as if it were yesterday, I would, my dad, mom, grandmother are here. I can remember one night lying in bed, baseball game the next day. This was my prayer before I went to sleep. God, help me hit a home run tomorrow. I wake up the next day. I've totally forgotten the prayer. I don't think anything about it until I get up to bat and I hit a home run. And the first thought in my brain was, thank you, God. Now, as I got older, the thought that invaded instead of thank you, God, was, I wonder if I'd have hit that home run if I hadn't prayed. That's a little boy's example. But I think as adults, we have a tendency to say, yeah, I prayed about that, and yeah, it worked out, but it probably would have worked out even if I hadn't prayed. I'm not sure I can give God the credit for that one. And that tends to be the way we treat God's working in our lives. Even though the Bible tells us every good gift you have came from God. 
You see goodness in your life, you should give credit to God. You should be building His resume of credentials and how He's worked. And when times of crisis come, you have the faith of how God's worked in your life to look back upon. So David says, uh, uh, and I love this. Oh, I just love this story. Just, I'm telling you, this story I, I just can't tell you enough. Saul dressed David in his own tunic, in Saul's tunic. He put a coat of armor on him. He put a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword around the tunic, tried walking around because he wasn't used to him. He said, I can't go in these, he said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So he took them off and he took five smooth stones and the rest is history because God was at work. Do you realize, David says, I, was it Daryl Royal who said, dance with the ones that, one that brung you? That's the, that came from David first. Saul says, here, take my armor, go into battle. David says, no. I'm going with what I'm used to. God's taking care of me. I don't need that. I don't need that. I have what it takes to handle this crisis in my own life because I have the Lord. Now, David didn't go barehanded. He went with five smooth stones that he picked up. He went with his slingshot. But the point is, David took the tools that God had worked with in his life, confident that God would use those tools again to beat the crisis. And God did. God was faithful. David sticks with God. He goes in there, and, and, and the first thing that happens is trash talk. This, <laughs> I love this story. And it, that's what it is. That's what we call it, trash talk. You know, if you go... Uh, to some basketball games and stuff, especially back when we had Charles Barkley playing. Occasionally we'd get some tickets and we'd be down there real close to the floor where we could hear him. And he could trash talk. Man, he'd be talking about their mama. He'd be talking about how they couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. He'd be talking about how they were slow, fat, and ugly. And he'd just be out there talking the whole time, trash to the other side. And the other side would just get so mad. Some of them would talk back to him. And he'd just laugh. Charles Barkley was good at the trash talk. Um, I understand Michael Jordan is supposed to be quite good at trash talk, intimidating the younger players. Um, well, that's what goes on here. They're getting ready for the battle. So we look at it. Verse 41, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him, you know, keep saying it. <laughs> you know, what mattered was not who was in front of David, but who was behind him. But for the Philistine, he's got a shield bearer in front of him. He keeps coming, coming closer to David. He looks David over. He sees David's a boy, ruddy, handsome, and he despised him. He says to David, am I a dog? Hey, am I a dog? Yo, am I a dog? You're sending a little boy here with his little stick, going to beat the dog? Am I a dog? You come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He says, come here, boy. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air. And give your flesh to the beasts of the field. And he trash talks. Okay? He doesn't trash talk as well as David. David's not only good with a slingshot, get a load of David's trash talk. Man, David's like the Charles Barkley of trash talk here. David says to the Philistine, yeah, you're coming at me. You got a sword, you got a spear, you got a javelin. Look what I got. I have 
Yahweh Almighty, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. In other words, you've ticked off God. And He's on my side. And this day, God is going to hand you over to me. And I'll strike you down. And I'll cut off your head. And I'll give not only your body, but your whole stupid army's carcasses to the the carcasses of the whole army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know it's not by sword or spear that Yahweh saves. The battle is Yahweh's. He will give all of you into our hands. Your turn. <laughs> I, he trumped him on the old trash talk, didn't he? You know, it's, am I a dog? You send sticks to me? I'm going to feed you the animals. Oh, time out. All you got's a spear. All you got's a javelin. All you got's a sword. I got the Lord. You've ticked him off. He's going to whip your tail today. I'm going to cut off your head, and then I'm going to feed your whole army to the... So, with that, the Philistine moves closer to attack him. And David runs quickly toward the Philistine. David's excited. Um, David wins. <laughs> because God is on his side. Um, we have a few more minutes. Um, and by the way, the armies are routed, or is routed. Uh, the Philistines do get whipped, all of them. Saul um, gets very jealous of David because the people sing his praises. Saul tries every way he can to kill David. We read that David has opportunities to kill Saul. David refuses. We read that Jonathan, Saul's son, helps David. And then question number two, and we'll do this one quickly. Who do you live to please? Because there's a very disturbing story that happens in here that you need to know about. This is the story of Doeg the Edomite. Um, when David's running from Saul, trying to, to keep, you know, he's got no choice. He's got to either run from him or kill him. And David's not going to kill Saul. He says, it's not God. Saul was God's anointed. I'm not going to lift my hand against God's anointed. When God's time is right for me to be king, I'll be king. But I'm not going to force the issue. And it's not my timing, it's God's. And if I've got a choice between killing Saul or running, I'm running. Now, this is the man who ran into battle against Goliath. It wasn't out of fear. It was out of wisdom that David runs. And in the process of running, he goes to Ahimelech, the priest of, of Nob, and uh, uh, says, hey, my guys are starving. Do you have some food? And do you have, don't we have Goliath's sword around here somewhere? The priest gives him the food, gives him the sword. And while the priest is doing that, nearby is Doeg the Edomite. 21 verse 7. It says... Now, whoops. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before Yahweh. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. And Doeg is able to hear or at least see David ask Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword? Um, um, the priest says, Yeah, we've got Goliath's sword, and here, if you want it, you've got it. And David says, Hey, there's nothing quite like it. Um, we read in the next chapter. That, uh, let's get it back to it in a minute. That Saul's very upset, and Saul's saying, Man, why can't anybody find David and kill him? And Doeg the Edomite 
says, you know, the priest at Nob helped him. I was there, I heard it. Tattletale. Um, and Saul says, we'll bring him here. And Saul says, why don't you help my enemy? And the priest says, look, David hadn't lifted a finger against you. I didn't give David a sword to come kill you. David's not trying to kill you. He's running from you. And I, I don't know all of this stuff anyway. You know, I, David comes, he wants, I give it to him. I took care of the need that was there. Saul says, okay, um, army, kill not only the priest, but all of his family, kill all the priests and the whole family, all the priests if not. The army won't do it because they don't want to lift up their hands. But Doeg, the tattletale Edomite, says, I will, and personally picks up a sword and slaughters 75 people, priests of God. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down that day. He killed, I'm sorry, 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men, its women, its children, its infants, its cattle, its donkey, its sheep. Everybody except Abiathar, who's the son of Ahimelech, who escapes and tells David. And David says, you know, I saw that guy there. I saw Doeg the Edomite. This is my fault. I knew that guy would go rat. Just never dreamed that that would be Saul's reaction. You stay with me and I'll take care of you. There are evil, wicked people in this world. And some of these evil, wicked people are ones who are going to come in front of you and be your obvious enemy. And some of them are not. And the story doesn't always have a happy ending for everyone who's serving the Lord on this earth. That's why God makes it clear throughout Bible that this earth is not the end of the story. This earth is the beginning. It's the door to our, eternal, our eternity. We don't have the promise that in every crisis our Goliath will be slain and we will be victorious. But we do have the promise that our God is bigger than every problem. And that however the result works out, if we're walking in faith with our God, it is the right result for us and His world and His plan. And that should be what we want over everything else. Who do you live to please? Doeg the Edomite lived to please King Saul. What a mistake he made. King Saul lasted another couple of chapters. David gets a whole other book. Pray with me. Lord, give us wisdom when we confront our crises in life to look to you. Help us to teach our children. Help us to teach each other. Help us to edify uh, your body and the world with the knowledge that you truly are bigger than any problem. And that in your hands, problems uh, are, are nothing except avenues of discovery for how you will work. May we trust you in faith, lean on you heavily, and Lord, may we live to please you, not some earthly king, not some personal pleasure, not some acquisition, but may we find our daily sustenance and our joy and our purpose in life in pleasing you and walking in your will. Enrich us in this class, please, Lord. We pray through Jesus. Amen.